0: Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World, with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered, and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. Everybody, welcome back to the show. Uh checking in from Steamboat Springs, Colorado. I have not been here before. This is my first time here. I've spent quite a bit of time in Colorado, but there's sort of this section in like the northwest, I guess, that I haven't explored. Um so spending a bit of time around here now and pretty much just like the rest of Colorado, it's great. Um We had this, like, awful, long, hot, boring drive through Wyoming um, yesterday. And it was really nice to see mountains again. (laughs) There's definitely parts of Wyoming that are really beautiful, but there's also so much flat, empty space. Um, And I guess the heat wave finally caught up with us, so, like, a boring drive through flat land and sun beating down. It was just not a good time. Uh, anyway, I don't know what it is about Colorado for me that has always felt so good and comfortable and home-like in a way. I think maybe part of it is because my grandparents from a very young age, or when I was a very young age, had a cabin out in Gunnison. Which, if you've been listening to this show for a while, you know that I was supposed to actually move there to that cabin. Uh, this fall. And those plans changed for various reasons. Um, but it's a beautiful spot sort of in between Gunnison and Crested Butte on uh, Ohio Pass. And I always experienced it as, you know, very much the sort of like utopian idyllic um, getaway. They never installed internet. And sort of unlike the rest of my family, I was the one person that loved it. I loved being disconnected. I loved being out in nature. Um, so maybe I just have that sort of recognition from childhood of being out in that spot in Colorado and associating all of Colorado like that. But really, as I continue to explore the state, um, in the past few years, especially before I had the plan to move to that cabin, I was still thinking I was going to move to Colorado. None of this ended up happening, although maybe someday. Um, but I went like so many different places to kind of check them out and see how I felt and see what I liked. And man, like just, there was so much amazing stuff. The San Luis Valley, um, Moffat and Crestone, driving through, um, certainly the drive from Gunnison to Crested Butte over Ohio pass, driving down through the San Juans. I definitely cried when I drove through Array. I think I'm saying that right. (laughs) Spending time in Ridgeway Ridgeway and Silverton and Durango is just all fucking great. Um, and now being in this part of, uh, Colorado that I haven't yet explored, it's also fucking great. Um... On that note, I'm going to be in Colorado for the next month, pretty much through the end of August, and I'm going to take a little trip down to New Mexico, which I'm really excited about going to interview someone who, uh, for the podcast who I can't wait to share with you guys. Um, but in the meantime, I'm going to be in Colorado for a month. The plan and schedule is virtually non-existent, um, we're like trying to be strategic about it, but there are so many amazing recommendations in so many different places and so many people we want to go and see and talk to that I think we'll probably just end up like bouncing around and retracing our steps um, and not trying to come up with some super strategic system for traveling throughout the state, which I'm fine with because everything is beautiful and I would not mind going to uh, certain places multiple times. Um, having said that, if, anyone has any recommendations for local people anywhere in Colorado, people who they think would be good on the podcast, shoot me a message. You can email me Anya Kates, A N Y A K A A T S at gmail.com. Um, You can also email me at Anya at AnyaCates.com. Doesn't matter. You can send me a message on Instagram or comment somewhere, anything. Um, Looking for certainly local, cool people you think would be good to interview on the podcast. I'd love to do as many in-person interviews on this show in general as possible. So if anyone is local that you know of, let me know. If any of you live in Colorado and you want to hang out, also shoot me a message. If you have some cool land, or want to take me to a cool restaurant, or just want to say hi, um, I'm always really happy not just to hear from you guys, but to meet you. That's the most exciting and fulfilling. Um, And any cool free camping spots, sort of recommendations off the beaten path, um, all of that is welcome. Um, I would love to hear from you guys. As I said, I've explored quite a bit of this state, but I'm um, always really interested to go and see things I haven't seen before. Probably going to do a couple meetups in Colorado. Um, we were thinking just Boulder before, but we might do one in Boulder and Denver and might just like announce that we're like hanging at a bar one night and whoever wants to come by with like six hours notice can. Um, don't know what that is yet. If you are in Colorado and you're curious about when those meetups are my best advice is to follow me on Instagram. I'll be posting them, um, on my stories. Probably it's going to be a bit last minute because our schedule is so, uh, ridiculous and, um, unplanned. Um, but yeah, or send me a message and, uh, just get, get in touch and I will be sure to let you know when we plan those. Um, I'm not going to blabber on too much today. My computer is dying and, uh, got a lot to do. (laughs) So, um, I will pretty much let you guys just listen to this episode. Today is a This is a conversation with Sonya Lee. Um, beautiful woman. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation that we had. Um, I got a, a room at a hotel maybe a week or so ago and, and recorded two remote interviews. Um, not the most convenient thing to do, but, uh, it's hard. It's hard to, I mean, the podcast is growing and that's amazing, but it's in terms of meeting people in person, it's like, I either need to have a ton of clout and can just sort of email like anybody, any famous person and be like, Hey, uh, Gregory Allen do you want to come on the podcast? Uh, don't have that sort of clout. Um, I think he lives in Colorado. That's why I said that. Uh, awesome musician, by the way. Um, or uh, have enough uh, listenership and enough people that are like constant me, constantly sending me advice for people to talk to. Um, I don't really have either of those yet. And so although I much prefer in-person conversations because I think the content becomes a bit more int- uh, intimate and secondly, I think the quality, just sound quality is a bit better. Um, I wish I could do that all the time, but unfortunately at this stage, I can't. Uh, So I do remote interviews. And to be fair, the vast majority of those conversations, I think, are um, excellent. I think I only sort of experience them not going so well once in a while um, due to connectivity and all that, but... um, I'm grateful to have that option for sure, because without it, I wouldn't have much of a podcast. Um, But on that note, if you are a listener and you want to support the show, um, you can head on over to patreon.com slash Anya Cates, donate a little bit of money, get access to some perks. Um, That's super helpful because it helps make this podcast a priority for me um, and can help me sort of make it more of my main career. Um, the other things you can do are contact me when you have advice for people to interview in certain areas, um, or yeah, anywhere. I mean, I can always do them remotely, uh, and tell, and tell friends. Um, you can also subscribe on your podcast app or, um, hit some like rate it, uh, with stars or leave a review. Those are all free to do. And if you find the content valuable, it helps me a lot. Um, even though it sounds sort of silly, it actually does help the podcast grow and show up in search results more and, and, uh, helps people decide if they want to listen to it or not because they see, oh, Hey, look, that podcast has like no reviews, uh, or it has a bunch of them and, oh, that podcast has like two stars or, oh, that one has five and, you know, a hundred people have rated it. So all of those things help, um, money's great i need money to live but honestly i'm more inclined to tell you guys to do those other things spread it word of mouth um review it rate it and subscribe on podcast apps um anyway back to what i was talking about uh sonya lee awesome conversation um she wrote a memoir uh, several years ago that um, It was really fascinating. She explored some really fascinating topics around, um, loss and sex and, um, relationship. She has a awesome podcast with her daughter. Um, anyway, all of that we talk about in our podcast, so I'm not going to repeat it. Uh, hope you enjoy the show. Um, yeah, reach out to me about Colorado recommendations. I want to hear from you. Love you all. Catch you on the other side. Alright, so I am here with Sonia Lee. Is that how you say it? Sonia Lee. Sonia Lee. That's Hi, a Anya. Name. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm super excited about this conversation. Um, uh, you wrote a memoir back in 2015 called Wondering Who You Are. Uh, and what struck me about the story with that, uh, initially was about these concepts of like death and grief. Um, Mm-hmm. I uh, talk about on the grief of, on the podcast quite a bit and uh, in my own struggle, kind of dealing with how to define that and death without like outside of the context of actual death. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So, and, and since sort of like learning more about your book and hearing you speak, I, there's so many other things I'd like to talk about, but I guess initially, if you could, for the listeners give like a bit of an overview about your book and the experience that you went through and we can kind of go from there.
1: Sure. Uh, My husband Richard and I met when we were teenagers um, and been together since I was 17 years old. So it's been a really long relationship. He had um, a rare form of cancer uh, when we were in our 40s, early 40s, called pseudomyxoma peritonei. And it springs out of the appendix, but essentially it fills the whole abdominal cavity with mucus with a form of mucus that then suffocates the organs if you're not treated mm. uh, you know uh, famously Audrey Hepburn had this and was uh undiagnosed uh, there lots of people that we are now learning can be treated by it but in uh, the year 2000 it was uh a surgery that was fairly radical, but then the cancer came back in 2003. And so he had to go through a fairly extreme cancer surgery that is now considered the standard of care for this particular form of cancer, but at that time it was wildly experimental. Um, there was only a few people in the United States who were doing it. Um, so he got prepared for it, and he did the surgery. But what happened was um, – you know, he went in for this surgery for a rare cancer and he came out without any memories of his life, of our life, of any of his relationships, um, of time in many ways. Um, All of his history was completely locked away from him. And um, in addition to the things that we learned as we went along, because at first it's just a surprise. It's a shock. You don't really know what you're dealing with. Um, We learned that he had forgotten his sexual history. So he was reset to a new identity. Um, His previous personality left at that time. And he also... um, Uh, especially at the very beginning, had no desire to communicate. Uh, Language was also removed from him. He could say yes or no. He could react to people. He could say a few words and a few sentences, but he had absolutely no desire to communicate. And his personality previous to that time had been very gregarious, very extroverted, I kind of call it the smartest man in the room syndrome. You know, somebody really needs to have that kind of magnetism move towards them. Um, So we didn't know what was going on for the longest period of time. And the book is really, Wondering Who You Are is about our relationship before that event happened and our relationship after that event happened and what we grappled with about uh, who we are As humans, and what exactly are we relating to when we're trying to relate to someone,
0: right? right, Uh, right. In a a
1: partnership, but also in any kind of relationship.
0: Yeah, yeah. Was there a period of time where you weren't a hundred percent sure what was going on and thought that the memory loss would be temporary?
1: Yes. Oh, yes. The first um, year, I think we were mostly guided in that direction, oh, okay. definitely in the first six months. So um, the surgeon pulled me aside. We spent a month in the cancer treatment center because after a surgery like that, you also have to go through um, an internal uh, chemotherapy process to kill off all the cells. And um, he died that night on the operating table, he lost a massive amount of blood and that caused an anoxic insult in his brain, but it also weakened his whole body. So that plus chemotherapy, we spent about a month in the cancer center. Um, and then the surgeon pulled me aside and said, I think he could have had an anoxic insult. So um, we very soon started investigating that, but in the medical world, you need to go through their pathways for it, you know, which generally start with speech therapy. Um, And then we found a great speech therapist who was finally able to say to us, this is, this is plateaued. He's not getting any better. I do recommend that you see a neuropsychologist. And then the neuropsychologist is able to uh, kind of put together a picture for you of what's been lost based on um, the kinds of skills um, whether they're kinesthetic or verbal or, you know, what remains with the individual that you have in front of you and then piece together uh, who they were in their previous life, you know, based on college records and all of those things. So by about a year out, six months to a year out, we started to have a really good picture that this was going to take some time. Um, and at that time, You know, shock and grief together have such a huge impact. Um, I think my, I was just trying to keep going. I I was, we were both trying for survival. And so we weren't really looking at this as um, uh, what happens if it doesn't come back. You know, I I wasn't looking at what happened to him in the initial stages of the trauma in any of the ways that I would later look at it and that I Uh, Perceive it now. I think you just have to go through all of the experiences of it to actually begin to see oh, it's possible that this is like an awakening and not a brain injury. Mm -hmm. And then start to recontextualize what happened. But, you know, I'm a storyteller and I'm in the business of making narrative. And then I was put inside a narrative. Uh, that i couldn't understand it was the mystery was bigger than anything that I'd ever had access to before. so what I wanted out of that book when I was creating it was a way to begin to contextualize and po- possibly deconstruct what happened for myself, super invested in the writing process for myself, and everything that I needed from the book happened from the process of writing and not from what people's reactions were to the writing right right but that's hard that's such a hard one experience yeah yeah
0: yeah I love the the concept of narrative I talk a lot about stories on my podcast as well Mm -hmm. um and I wonder too like was there in this sort of moment of transition perhaps of coming out of the sort of like shock and survival mode into the sort of like acceptance grieving mode, this struggle between like wanting to, or not wanting to control the narrative. So it's like, okay, uh, this is who you were. This is what you were like, go back to this versus, well, we have this clean slate. Maybe I need to like, just hold space for you to become this new person. I'd love to hear how that
1: yeah, that's yeah. a years long process. I think that's yeah. the thing that's so shocking to me about it is um, the grief came in the same way that it came with significant deaths in my life. Me, so I had a body in front of me that looked like my, hus- my previous husband's body mm-hmm. to some degree, except for the, you know what happened with scarring, with cancer and so forth. But still, I could look at that um, and it wasn't missing. So I think I had a lot of expectations because his body was still there that it, he would return. And all of my grief, then uh, I had to try and find a way to grieve while kind of depersonalizing it for him because he, was, uh, he was, didn't experience fear. And the only sadness that he experienced at that time was when he saw us being sad. Right. So other, other people's stories would impact him, but he, wasn't, he was really neutral about life. Um, and so I didn't want my grief to kind of move him from himself. And then I think it was about two years in, I started to see him. And the ways that he was coming out of himself as being really extraordinary. Like, wait a minute. I would talk to people about it. He has no preferences whatsoever. What is that about? Like no, no preferences for food, no preferences for anything that we did. Completely neutral about life, which I did later learn often happens to people who've had some type of a spiritual event or an awakening mm. happen. Um So the main thing for me is I just got really curious about that. Like, oh, what would that be like to be in that place? And then I became really curious about him. So at the same time I was grieving, I was building relationship with him. I think one thing that had to happen for us, for both of us, is we couldn't make the assumption that we were going to stay in relationship together. I knew that I was going to stay with him as long as he was um, physically suffering and um, not able to uh, thrive in life on his own. But I didn't know what was going to happen after that. And I think there was a point at which we finally began to talk about it and we decided to start dating again. We just like, let's reset this back to before we knew each other, before we knew what was up. And um, it was then when I could have a completely different relationship with who he was as this new man that I started to realize this whole experience is exactly what I needed to move me as well. So the identity changes that he was going through I was now starting to see as potentially moving my identity. That just took a number of years for that to transpire because there was so much uh, the work to get him well from cancer. Um, we had to do a lot of things like learning accommodation strategies and learning how a brain injury uh, needs to be supported. Um, it is a disability Um there are certain things that he needed accommodations for in life and in work. There were times he wanted people to know and when, when he didn't want people to know, he wanted to kind of try and pass as the new guy. And so strategizing how to do work and how to um, find relationships for him that were new right. relationships that weren't based on people who knew him as the one in the past. Um, you know, all of those started to come together and I think it was just my curiosity like what is happening here and who is this person and could I similarly have an identity shift that would be so remarkable that my narrative would be disrupted yeah and then I was in it then I was just in it right having that experience just as you're talking about about your life you know Yeah, And having those moments of, well, wait a minute, none of these things on the exterior are actually working for me. Right. What do I do? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I talk a lot about this as well. I think a lot of the stories that I feature on the podcast are this process of sort of like recognizing the structure within within which we've defined ourselves, either through like fundamentalist religion or just cultural overall or our parents' beliefs realizing that and then having to like deconstruct ourselves and be sort of completely raw and that process of putting ourselves back together again. Um, There's so many things I want to talk about around identity. Um, But I also, before getting totally into that, like, can you talk a bit about what you felt like were some of the most taboo aspects of this process for you? So, you know, like this idea of death, like maybe this being more difficult than had he died. Right. Or, um, you know, expressing immense grief, uh, and loss, let's say in the face of someone who actually lost their husband. Right. Was there some of that like bizarre sort of cultural expectation that you had to navigate through all of this?
1: There was, and you know what I'll say too, is I really, I became very compassionate towards, um, caregivers, Mm. particularly female caregivers who um, have partners who have cancer, but also brain injury because um, there is a lot of divorce in brain injury, but there's this expectation that you're going to either abandon the person or take on the martyr role. I wrote a piece about this for uh, Ms. Magazine a year or so ago because I was really curious a friend of mine uh, had read uh, the memoir and said, I think that you totally subverted the role of the caregiver. And I said, what do you, what do you mean by this? And then she named, you know, she named everything that happened. And I realized, oh God, there's so much in this that can be talked about, particularly amongst women where um, a, a wife role, it is, very much encouraged that you get benefits that arrive to you if you take on a certain kind of, um, sublimating any desire that you have, sublimating any idea of a vision for your life to whatever it is that the person is suffering. So that doesn't take away from the fact that people choose to do that and that you do that for all the people that you love, uh, on some level, but to think that the societal expectation is the most important thing for you and to kind of play that identity out is really where it gets dangerous and in peril. So I think um, there were lots of taboos for me. One was talking about being angry.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask about that.
1: even, Even with Richard, I had to really condition him that, uh, this wasn't being angry at him. This was being angry at the brain injury. And so sometimes when stuff, when he he forgets, he still forgets all the time, particularly relationship-oriented agreements, um, because it's not the kind of thing you can put in your calendar very easily and create accommodation strategies for. It just ends up being the thing that happens. So we designed this thing where... Um, you know, I would need to get big and yell and I would say, just join me. Like, I know that you're pissed in there somewhere about what happened. So we would just, you know, scream in the kitchen, um, and find ways to kind of get it out of ourselves physically so that that wasn't held on to, um, I did have, um at least one really good friend who lost her husband during the time of the brain injury. And I really made sure that I made contact with her to say, I know this isn't the same. I know that what I'm experiencing, because I have his body and we still are having pleasure together and learning together. And I have a future. I know that's not the same as losing your husband. Um And just for me, telling the truth is the, and being as honest as possible is the, the best way to get to um, living authentically in these circumstances. It's, you know, I think that's the meaning of it on some level, that those big events that happen to us is to... Move us more fully into living authentically move us moving us into a place where we can have more candor with each other about what our situations are if i I feel like if I had gone through this experience and felt like I needed to hide a part of my identity away, then what's the use of this thing even happening to mm-hmm. us to begin with that's right. the that's going in the background. There was also a period of time. Um, I think I probably talked with Chris Ryan about this in his podcast um, where uh, we weren't monogamous and, and, you know, in hindsight, I understand a lot more of why that was in the, in the moment, I think I was acting instinctively. Um, I was acting out of grief also because I missed um, Richard's uh, kind of, Uh, that former personality that had a real defined masculine presence. And I missed that. Um, And so uh, he was so non-preferential, but that didn't mean that he didn't have a choice in the decision. We talked about this for probably a year before we took action on it. Um, And that part of our life felt really, investigatory and, um, loving and, uh, kind and experimental. And, you know, we were just trying to design a way that worked for us in that particular point in time. And I don't consider us to be polyamorous and, um, we go in and out of, uh, identities around our sexuality and that feels super comfortable. Um, to me now yeah Yeah. but at the time um, it was the hardest thing about well writing about sex and money in the book were two of the hardest things to come clean about and two of the things that I think people end up talking about the most and for example I had reviewers who said uh, things like I wasn't sure that I should be uh, having a window into their intimacy, right? And people really talked about the level of intimacy that was in the book. But, you know, I'm thinking, why is that such a big deal? Why is that such a, why is there a should in that sentence? Um, it, I feel like this is where it get, becomes political. For me, because I feel like if we can talk about who we are at our most human levels, then we wouldn't be having this um, abrasive racism still governing America. We wouldn't yeah. be dealing with misogyny in the same ways because people would be able to express their humanity and see each other in that capacity as well. Yeah. so I encourage if anybody out there is thinking about writing a story uh include your most intimate details even if you don't have to um you don't want to have it go public there's still something worthwhile in hearing your own narrative in all the ways that you see yourself
0: yeah it's funny just before we started recording i was listening to a bit of your podcast with your Mm -hmm. daughter which i want to talk about a bit later but you said something i think that was Mm -hmm. like being vulnerable uh with your intimacy with someone is like radicalizes you in this really Mm -hmm. immense way. I thought that was such a beautiful way to say that. And I've had a couple of podcasts. I did one with my dad, um, who's gay. And so we have a Mm -hmm. very unique level of intimacy specifically around issues, I think pertaining to sexuality. Um, and it was really important for me to like showcase that relationship and that intimacy. And I've done it with a couple of friends of mine as well for the same reason. Um, So yeah, I think that's, I mean, I feel like this is probably an impossible question, but I know you have written quite a bit about sexuality within the context of this whole situation. Was that one of the most sort of like prominent themes for you? Or like, (laughs) I guess my question initially was like, what was the hardest piece about the loss of his memory, which seems ridiculous, but was there, were there certain things like sexuality that really stood out to you that you found yourself focusing on?
1: Yeah. You know, the hardest thing about the loss is losing the common history Mm. and realizing that there was no one to track me anymore mm. so he didn't remember our wedding day he didn't remember the day that the kids were born he didn't remember our first kiss he didn't remember so I'll just say this is where this fits into sexuality for me so when I'm with someone um in a sexual or an intimate way, even in conversation, you know, um, I'm thinking a little bit when I'm with someone I know who's a friend or a partner, lover, um, you know, you're thinking about all the times that there were before too, right? Like I sometimes will think, Oh, I've been with this skin for his near his whole life. I've been with this this particular skin or the way that this hand moves for decades now. That's just phenomenal to me. I never imagined it, but he, my husband, Richard, is in the experience of being completely present in that moment. He's not having a reference of the last time we made love. He's not having a reference of when we first got together. None of those histories continue to be alive in him. He is the most in the moment person I've ever come across. And that really shakes me up. It it shook me up at the beginning because I was like, "Oh shit, I don't, I no longer have anybody who's going to track me. So who's going to know who I am?" Hmm. So I, I reached out to a couple of really good women friends and said, "I, it's okay if you say no to this, but I really want you to track me. I want you to reference who I was in this situation. Um, I really want you to, if if I'm." Um, you know, not doing something that's aligned with who I really am or how you see me, I really want you to call me out on it. Like, I want somebody in my life who really is tracking um, this narrative in some way. It's one of the ways that I find myself, I think, because I'm a storyteller, but I also think it's a very human brain kind of thing to do, that probably evolutionary, it helps us know when the enemy might be at the same pond, you know, Mm -hmm. when we were moving about. So I think the sexuality part and reteaching him um, his pleasure as well as what pleases me was not the most difficult part for me. It was really the loss of identity. And then the jarring that happened for me once I started to have my identity shapeshift shift as well as a result of that experience, excuse me, but that all plays into sexuality. That all plays into all of the expressions, uh, sensual expressions of life. But I think the, the questions I asked in the book and that I still ask of myself is where, where does sexuality start and where does it end? You know, that's a, I think that's a really fun question. Um, it's certainly, I don't know it just led me all kinds of places because he was emptied of any preconceived ideas about it and what it needed to be then i needed to be a little bit careful about what i placed with him um so that he could still have that really open-minded curiosity about it but really one of the biggest impacts for me was like Mm -hmm. is it sexuality when I'm needing this pizza dough for dinner like (laughs) is it like what what's foreplay anymore I don't know like it just exploded my whole view of um interchange between people and what's really going on and the other thing is I think because I was thinking about For a period of time, in between loving the former man and loving the new man, there was a space, there was a gap where nothing was happening, even during the times that we were dating. And I don't mean making the decision whether you're going to stay or go. I mean, it was just really neutral in terms of emotions. And there's so much that can spring out of that. There's so much... um, like real experimentation that can come from uh, neutral moments like that, mm-hmm. when you don't have any idea of what's going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. So that had all kinds of implications for everything. Uh, but one of the things that it led me towards is um, like a feeling okay. of identifying emptiness in my body and, um, uh, instead of kind of, uh, I'd been kind of a willful person before my, I can hear my sisters laughing at that. Ha ha (laughs) Kind of. Um, uh, So instead of this version of willing myself to kind of create things to happen in my life, there was more of a sitting back and from that, could I perceive from that emptiness or from that gap, uh, what could arise? And then when it kind of with the, Uh, the identity stuff that started to happen with me um just not having the expectation that I needed to be anything for anyone I didn't have to be anything for him you know so why was I it, it hit all of my other roles it hit my mother roles it hit my friendship roles it um led me to being able to be really vulnerable in writing. It led me to the same kinds of vulnerable relationships that you're talking about with your family too and friends. Yeah. It's such a, there's a, such a power in it that I think is, goes unrecognized. Um, and I'm curious about it even more so because of the social media world that we live in where like so much grooming happens for uh, Identities that we think need to be seen or or shown so much it's almost like we're branding identities at this point that need to be kind of pre sold you know to yeah. get what we want I think that's the ultimate goal um, yeah that this would be the opposite of that so then negotiating those spaces becomes really tricky it feels like an um, taking on an identity. And then removing myself from it.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating to hear you talk about sexuality. I uh, have always said that I think for multiple reasons, but my sexuality was like one of the most well-integrated parts of my identity, even before I recognized that. And I think if it weren't for that recognition, um, and I think I've always been someone like you do when I'm like kneading the pizza like, is this sexual, I, I <laughs> see things through the lens of sexuality and always have in a really intense way. Um, And so I wonder too, if like in this process of deconstruction and sort of like putting yourself in this neutral open source state, if the sexuality became so prominent, perhaps because it is so integral and authentic to us in a way that culture and society and our upbringing kind of takes away from us at a certain point. But I always said that if it weren't for that thread, like that was the thread that kept me on the path of breaking out of inauthentic situations and experiences. Like, and if Mm -hmm. it weren't for that, I potentially could have gotten lost. Mm -hmm. Um, do you feel like that was part of it for you that it was like one piece that you were holding onto, um, and potentially redefining as well, but like holding onto and thinking about because it was so like animalistic and primal in some way?
1: Yes. And also it was the one thing that I was really super connected with Richard on uh, because he, he turned from being verbal to being kinesthetic. So everything was about touch for him. All of his learning. If I wanted him to remember something, I would just put my hand on him or we'd go for a walk and those kinds of things would tend, that information would stay in. Um, I could trust it more. Um, But also I was like coming up to midlife. I was, you know, early forties when this happened and I was coming up to, um, perimenopause and kind of this superheated cauldron of, uh, what happens to women's bodies during that time. And I was out of control with it. Like I, I didn't, nobody in my life had ever uh, really gone through a natural version of this. Everybody had had surgeries. Mm -hmm. Um, which I think is another common experience that happens in American or possibly North American life is there's interventions on women's bodies that don't really allow you to feel the whole gamut of what it could be. Um, So uh, it was more to me about uh, that piece that I could trust was going back to my body and keeping decisions sourced there, uh, keeping experiences in that place. Mm -hmm. It was powerful yeah and what, what do you mean when you when you're talking about that for you though of that it felt integral to you does that mean that you could go back over time and find a younger self or is it without history it just um,
0: yeah i mean that's a great question i think a lot of it is extremely hard to comprehend um i think perhaps because of how i was raised although there were lots of challenges um both of my parents were pretty uh open about sexuality and i I felt like that was a space that i was able to sort of just exist um and also a space in which i had there was definitely a level of codependency uh with my relationship with at least one of my parents as well and so i think my sexuality was one part that i could keep to myself yeah. Um, and I didn't, this, none of this was conscious until much later when I got older and sort of started putting the pieces together. Um, but, uh, it was something that just felt like I always said, my sexuality is well integrated and that didn't actually mean that I was like having a ton of sex or going out being promiscuous. It was just that that part of me felt it was like a current that was always there that felt real and clean and pure, um, and it was interesting. I was hanging out with a, a friend recently, uh, some new friend who I just met, who has a daughter who is, uh, maybe five or six, something like that, seven maybe, but young. And she, we were sitting in the car and she put my finger in her mouth and sort of started sucking it in what was like a, to me, very sexual way. But it's like, this is a young child. She doesn't really know what she's doing. And I started asking her questions like, why are you doing this? And she said, because I like it and it feels good. Um, and it got me into thinking about like, especially for women, are they, are there these ways that we are, you know, animalistic and powerful within our sexuality? That's very core to our, to our identity and something that's, I mean, genetic is a strange word, but you know, like when ducks just learn to follow their mother, right? Like, where is that coming from, that instinctual knowing? Um, So anyway, a long-winded question, but I think it was just a a strong current for me that existed sort of almost simultaneous to like knowing that I needed to eat every day. Um, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And uh, because I think I made a lot of choices in my life that were um, like inauthentic to that feeling, Um, that that was the one sort of like roaring monster in the closet that was like, no, like you've got to stay true to this path. Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, I mean, and I, and listening to you talk, it's interesting because it was almost as if you were kind of, because of this lock, lack of tracking, loss of tracking with your husband, that like you almost too had the ability to be like, I could probably be whoever I wanted to be. Right. Exactly. exactly
1: (laughs) Such freedom. I mean, really to have, um, particularly a partner that you've had your whole life. And for me, especially a man, um, be able to give that to me ongoingly. It was so mind blowing. Um, because it, it's not just about reinvention. It's about liberation. You know, I could, it's, and it's not just my sexuality. It's, it was my authority. So for example, I, I've been managing our financial accounts for 15 years. Mm -hmm. No, with that, I, I am now in the position of, you know, moving him more into the choice making with that. He always felt good about what was happening and didn't feel any need to like take over or anything like that. Um, And we had a pretty balanced life before that around um, money and money decisions. But there was something about having such intense decisions to make and having that be completely um, like, this is what I need to do and I've got to do it for everybody. You know, like that kind of manager, leader, self takeover. My body really needed that experience too. You know, and I needed to not have anything in my way to... Um Compromise that at all, the other thing I was going to say about the sexuality as you're speaking about it, and I'm thinking about this about how you know the self authority and self pleasure and all of those things are you know becoming aligned uh, is I think because of the the curiosity and the openness in sexuality and eroticism it shows to people right when you're living that right people can detect it on the outside and i think that that's acceptable in a younger woman and i think it's completely unacceptable in an older woman i think we get a lot of the damage that comes from the culture when we are acting out of our pleasure or acting out of this you know uh, lovely sensual experience of ourselves, and the culture wants to shut that down. It doesn't want to see it. Mm-hmm. There's only like really narrow um, pieces of that. I think it also happens around ableism. You know, we don't want to see uh, anybody with a disability expressing that kind of wild erotic pleasure. Like there's, it's like the brain. <laughs> has this really narrow view, or maybe that's the brain as it's filtered through the collective. Um, Because I I really do think if we came clean about this, and I do think we're living in a time, um, particularly around essays and around podcasting and um, around places where we get to have some depth of experience shared with each other, where, oh, yeah, I can see that. I can experience that. That's maybe not what my experience of this is, but I can feel what that might be like for you. Yeah. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll blow through some of the ageism that's oriented towards, you know, if you're old, you can't look like you're still experiencing I certainly talk like you're still experiencing pleasure. Yeah.
0: Do you yeah. feel like in writing about those sort of like supremely intimate experiences for yourself, that that was part of it almost this like needing to come out of the closet and (laughs) because I feel like we live in so many closets outside of what the like standard narrative is about just let's say homosexuality um uh yeah this sort of like maybe radical uh intense desire to just be like this is who I am I'm gonna talk about it and I don't care
1: (laughs) yeah I'm I'm happy it worked out that way yeah um but Oh, I seriously, first of all, I seriously had people trying to shut me down. Um, I had a, someone who didn't want me to include the sexuality in the book who might have published it. Um, I had readers in a workshop class who tried to shut down, uh, my talking about the sexuality. So it was just so many messages that came back, but honestly, I didn't get, I'm, I'm really happy it worked out and I, and I've. I'm so grateful that I was able to say everything that I wanted to say, but really what I was trying to do in that writing of that book was to make it as beautiful to read as it was to live mm. because it was so exquisitely beautiful to be, I mean, even in the times I talk about, you know, in our relationship where they were previous to the brain injury and going through the gut wrenching things about anger and, Um, being young and having no skills and addiction and all of these other things. um, Even then, I think an authentic experience displayed on the page beautifully is a beautiful experience, even if it's bittersweet, even if it's heartbreaking.
2: Um,
1: So that's all I really wanted to do in that. And then I'm really happy that that anybody gets any experience of liberation from it. particularly people who are caregivers and particularly people who are still suffering um, under any type of ideology that says that they can't be themselves.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just think the visibility of authenticity and vulnerability in and of itself is I think very freeing for other people. It was definitely an intention of this podcast because when I was going through stuff, I was like, I have, I don't know where to go. Like, I don't hear myself. I don't see any narrative around what I'm going through. And I mean, I think part of that is this like awful way that we've constructed our society. And we live in these very sort of, uh, close, but, uh, isolated (laughs) societies, right. Where there's a lot of people around, but we're super, um, isolated. And like if we were living in more of a communal environment that, to be supported within grieving to be supported within growth and transformation. Um, like I, I just felt that it, it was, I had to be one of those voices at least we need a lot more of them, but I felt like at the very least maybe there's one other person that would listen to this and be like, Oh, thank goodness. You know, I'm not completely alone in this experience.
1: Yes. But, and my experience too, is that it literally heals trauma. Mm. You know, it It worked that way for me. I was saving myself through the writing of the book somewhere around the end of the writing of the book. I have a friend who works for, um, red badge, which is a program for, uh, storytelling for veterans who are experiencing PTSD and, and uh, brain injuries and combat trauma. He asked me to come in and speak and it ended up with, um, that organization asking me to create a program for women veterans and we've been doing it now for about six years, myself and a colleague, Suzanne Morrison. And every single time, it's amazing to me what can happen in a room of women who are speaking their greatest vulnerabilities, their, their, their most terrible secrets to each other because they're in a room that they can trust, that they have a high degree of confidence in, behold them. And, um, you know, these are women who... Not only experience combat trauma or sometimes uh, family of origin childhood trauma, um, but most of them have experienced military sexual trauma. So they've experienced rape, um, often uh, from their colleagues in the military, mm-hmm. and it is an incredibly uh, powerful and transforming room to be in because to author one's narrative really means that you get to own all of those aspects of not what was done to you, but how you are going to hold this story right. it has, it, it circles around the whole experience and it uses, we have to use our, our vulnerability to model that. That's what ignites it. There's also amazing you know, master writers' works that we read that really model that vulnerability as well. So, so in particular, women can have the courage to come out with those stories that really empower them. And uh, now we've been years with some of the same veterans in the room. And it's incredible to see how their stories, how what they do in life, the choices that they're making, how courageous they're becoming, their lives become bigger. They, they move on from terrible relationships. They create organizations. They go for the big job. They take up space in the room, you know? So, so no wonder um, there's this terror of us actually telling the truth about our lives sometimes, right? you know, there's that pushback response because really what there is is a lot of power
0: Um, in that exchange. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I always sort of like to ask the rhetorical question to myself (laughs) and others uh, about, like, where the intersection, where is the intersection of um, shame and privacy? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think I still sort of, I don't know if it's answerable necessarily. um, But I wonder, too, like, did you sort of struggle with, because you were sharing details of you and your husband's sex life, let's say, like in terms of his privacy like was he a part of like okay this is what we're going to talk about and share did you feel like a guilt or a protectiveness over your past or current experiences and sharing that Um, I think with having a podcast especially and talking about some of these things it's hard to share intimate details about myself that I want to share without it implicating other people right or like exposing Mm -hmm. other people's privacy so I'm curious how you've sort of maneuvered that throughout all of this. Mm
1: -hmm. I think that um, we had to decide between us what was private, even in the writing of the book. And he was so open um, as a result of the brain injury. I was probably a little bit more cautious. I Mm -hmm. wanted some identities uh, protected in the book. Um, I was uh, careful with our children in the book as much as anything else. They got to read in advance anything that was related to them and the family. Um, I wanted not just to have my point of view represented, but Which the, I'll tell you this, this is like only a story that a brain injury person <laughs> probably would understand, but, um, what I was worried about actually did happen, which was that, um, Richard would read every single version of the book. Like I spent, years and years reading this book and he would read every single version of the book. And I was concerned that what he read would become his story Mm -hmm. to him. And then eventually that started to occur. I started to hear him tell the story the same way the scene was written at that particular time in the book. And, um, you know, it felt dangerous to me to take that away, to take his neutrality away from him um, but this is what I learned about him. He has, um, he has a neutrality and this beautiful quality of emptiness that feels a little bit like a screen door, like nothing sticks. It just moves through, um, that returns to him. And that is his essence. That is who he is. And so he can put on a story or if he's at a dinner party or with other people, but mostly he returns to who he is ongoingly. So that fear of damaging didn't really, it's just that he knows that the story that's in the book is a good story to tell. The other thing was, um, Richard was a really different person before and because of my drinking had a lot more anger and, uh, expressed a lot more anger. And it was very difficult. Um, both of those things are very difficult. Uh, in our for our children to experience as they were growing up, and he had we had gone to therapy. He had made amends to me. He had made amends to our son, who was the one who experienced it the most, and um, he had forgotten it in the brain injury. So I'm working with an editor at Tin House who published my book, and he said. Just, I think there's something that you're circling around here, and I'd like to understand why. And I said, that's because I've never told Richard this. I've never really gone back and said, this is what happened. Mm. It was one of the left-out stories, because he was so innocent when he came out. He has this beautiful quality of innocence, and nobody really wanted to everybody wanted to experience him as he was they didn't want to revisit everything that had happened previously and we felt we felt cool about it at that point in our in our talking to each other so I told Tony that I would go and talk with him and I took him for a walk at the lake and I said you know they want me to write this scene and it's about your anger and about before and I want to know how do you feel about hearing this? And he said he would hear it. And so I started to tell him a couple of events that happened and he just stopped and started shaking his head. No, 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 no. How could that man do that? And that's exactly how he sees himself. He saw himself was as if, There's that line in the sand and the one before and the one now. We kept talking about it and going around the lake. And by the end of it, he said, you know, I don't have any desire for status. I don't have any desire to protect any perception of myself. You should tell the story exactly the way that you want to tell it. And that was, ended up being this huge gift of um, liberation. Once again, freedom for me artistically to go where we needed to go. And we checked with the kids, of course, to make sure that that exposure was fine for them. And it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that um, being able to see those changes in their entirety was probably really helpful to the context of the book. Um, my editor and I had a good cry about it <laughs> afterward in the way that only you can when you make a decision like that that has so much impact. Um, but I think it made me a better writer to, uh, to risk, um, his perception of himself as well as the communal perception. You know, it, it's a lot of it is useful. It's useful to me when I go into any room of writers that I'm teaching that I've done those things and then I could tell those stories helpful to them so that they can do the same thing. It's helpful to anybody who needs to do it for for their life.
0: Yeah. Well, and I imagine it was probably also even helpful to you. I didn't even think about the fact that within this sort of neutral space that like there were probably things that he knew about you that weren't the best (laughs) qualities, the best stories. And that it was like, do I, first of all, like, do I say something that's got to be like, Oh, I've got to go through this process again of, of, recounting these events about myself and my identity. But I imagine that that sort of openness on his part also, I mean, that his own vulnerability assisted you in kind of being honest about yourself as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And within limits, because at the beginning there was just so much to cope with. He wasn't right. able to really t- take it in, but later on he was. And so it, we returned to a lot of that and, had conversations about what do you want to hear? What's important for you to hear, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But he really is mostly living in the present moment so much. I don't think he really cares about history in the same way that other people do.
0: Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And on that, I would love to hear, you've mentioned, you mentioned spirituality a couple of times and it's something I talk about on my podcast. I was raised uh, really with a misunderstanding that there was such thing. I thought you could be religious or atheist. I didn't realize that there were nuanced uh, ways to be within that space. Mm -hmm. Um, so I would love to just hear your experience of that, either, you know, his transition or yours, um, and how you kind of define spirituality or a spiritual experience and like how that's informed this journey for Mm -hmm. both of you. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think I sometimes use that word as a code word, but I don't really know what it means. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, <laughs> I'll talk about this part of life. So I'll use that word. Um, it's mystery to me, in its largest context, or in nature and in wilderness. I live in Canadian Rockies. And, you know, I feel like I'm facing um, what's happening, what's moving in the world all the time, just by going out onto a trail or up on to a mountain, so I don't know what's spiritual and not spiritual. I think that that's—I mean, everything to me is in that realm. Um, but where the experience of being with Richard took me is into non-duality as a practice and as a way of thinking and as a way of being in the world. And um, I've met lots of great teachers along the way. I work with a woman, um, Lisa Cairns, who. I think has like a really great um way of describing it. She's young and um, she can really articulate what it is to feel an experience not separate. Mm-hmm. Dual is not separate from anything. And um and I'm kind of I'm oriented to wanting to be constantly uh-huh. learning. So I think for me, I learned Richard's um I'm learning Richard's way of who he is naturally through non-duality. And uh, it's such a, it's such an interesting experience. I came out of Catholicism, Mm. um, which is very rule driven. um, uh, Very, I know it gives people a lot of, uh, The beauty of the rituals and the ceremony, the connection to a community, all of those things. I don't feel the same need or desire for any of those things. Um, I think mostly because I'm face-to-face with it in what my ritual is, which is, you know, uh, being with the mountains, being with the changing weather, uh, experiencing what it is to sit under a tree all day. Those things are really where I find my source. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I have a lot of sympathy, I think, toward re- organized religions, just because I do sort of see them as uh, embodying, I think, what are a lot of really authentic human desire, you know, for meaning, for community, for, I think there's many ways in which we find that in the wrong ways. But um, I see so much of that, just like that constant theme, which makes me... Uh, kind of like oddly optimistic <laughs> and hopeful <laughs> in a strange way. Um, it's like at least the desire I think is coming from a place that, uh, makes a lot of sense to me and that I can relate to, even though that form of it, I can't.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, anyway, I'd love to, before we, uh, end, talk a bit about the podcast that you have, um, with mm-hmm. your daughter called bitch conoclast, bitch conoclast, conoclast. Yeah. Um, So this is a, a, I'm going to be talking to your daughter on the podcast as well, hopefully. Um, But I'm so into it because I love this sort of level of intimacy as we talked about that you're sort of disclosing with her. And also I think broaching these topics around sex and power and feminism that um, I think it's really, really important to look at those things, especially in this day and age, like cross-culturally and throughout different generations to see how we've, culturally constructed a lot of these concepts um Mm -hmm. so i would love to just sort of briefly hear about like where the inspiration for that podcast came from um and sort of your goal in in doing it we
1: uh my daughter dylan and i talk all the time at least a few times every week and i was around the time that i was putting the book out and i did a piece for salon and they headlined it something like um You know, he lost his memories and she had to become one tenacious bitch. And I (laughs) I was so upset about that. And then uh, I talked with somebody about it and they said, well, you know, you're the one who made the sentence in the piece. You talked about your grandmother uh, being a tenacious bitch and that's where you got it from. And that's what gave you the strength to do this. And I was, then it's a different thing, right? (laughs) And it's like, there it was. I created it. So Dylan and I are having a conversation about it. And I think one of us said something like, oh, it's not bitch, it's bitch conoclast to you. And we thought <laughs> that this would make a great, we're always talking about subjects related to sex, feminism, and power. Wouldn't this be a great way to kind of enter this conversation with some of the best women that we knew? So we picked uh, for our first season, Writers in the Pacific Northwest and um, design some great interviews. It was a great way for, I think for us, we're really different women. And so for Dylan and I to have a chance to come at a potential subject matter with uh, different views and ideas and inquiries about it um, felt really necessary. I think it was perhaps somewhat generational, but I think it was even more um, kind of what we're intrigued by the worlds that we're intrigued by differ. Um, And also that we could um, lay these things out as mother and daughter, and maybe families would be less afraid to have these kinds of discussions, or at least that was my motivation. I'm not sure if that was hers, but that was part of my motivation. And along the way, you know, like we learned our boundaries in these things too. Like I, I think as a mom, I was concerned about what she would find problematic to hear Mm. and where that line was going to be for her. So, you know, we had some conversations that weren't being recorded where we got to discover that a little bit more with each other. Um, I think it's easier for me to hear her experiences. I think that would be normal and natural in most um, relationships. Um, But yeah, it took us time to really kind of feel on our feet, about it. And the best way for us to do that was to talk with other people and then see how that informed our conversation with each other. We wow. hope to do another season too. We're just
0: raising money for it. Awesome. Well, I yeah. love it. I think I'm definitely going to listen to more episodes. It was I was so happy to see that something like that existed. <laughs> <laughs> you know
1: what I think you might like is um, the Vanessa Veselka one, because she's such a great, okay. she talks about uh, a woman on the road And how women on the road have only been written about one way, which is Mm. that they're in danger, they're in peril. Mm, Yeah.
0: yeah. So she really hits it. She's great. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I'll definitely listen to that. I talk about that all the time. People ask me like, aren't you, or I'm not traveling alone all the time, but when I do, especially people are like, aren't you worried and concerned? And I was like, to be honest, I haven't really thought about it. I feel pretty capable. And like, I think there's this narrative about, like weakness among women or something. I mean, clearly there are some actual tangible dangers, but for the most part, at least as a how I feel intuitively, like that that doesn't cross my mind. I think (laughs) it was great. I feel safe. Um, So I always ask people at the end of a podcast, if they could recommend one book to the listeners, what might that be? So I want to ask you that question, but I also would love for you to maybe answer that but talk a little bit also just more broadly around like when you were going through this or still what types of resources were helpful for you um and when I say resource I I don't just mean books but like I know you talked about writing as being extremely therapeutic but sort of like what you thought was the most helpful and the most healing for you when it came to processing all of this
1: Mm -hmm. Um I think I can answer those fairly well internet together. Um, Lydia ytnovich's Chronology of Water was one of the mainstays for me when I was learning to write this work, um, particularly vulnerable work, and it's what I use for uh, lots of teaching that I do, lots of workshops that I teach. Um, she is doing some big work. In that work and in her fiction, which is really about deconstructing mythmaking, mm. you know, our narratives have really only gone in one direction. It's tended to be, you know, the male dominant, uh, uh, probably, and yes, white paradigm of uh, the heroic narrative um, that has received a lot of the. This is how you write. This is how you construct a story. And she's very much outside of that. Um, So I think that uh, reading her book, and then I went to study with her um, at her organization, Corporeal Writing, and found um, mostly other women writers who were doing similar kinds of work. Um, What does it look like when we take things out of chronology? What does it look like when we put words um, that are in our exact experience of of life, not trying to follow a dominant publishing paradigm or some scheme that somebody has for how a story needs to be written. Um, so I worked with um her, I worked with Priscilla Long, who is a Seattle teacher of craft, um, and she's really wonderful as well. And just kind of found my my tribe of writers and readers along the way. I think that's the best way to do it is to get in a room with people and kind of test things out. Claire Dieterer's work, um, was also super helpful to me. Um, and she's kind of been one of the first people who has explored talking about midlife
0: issues in a way that leaves the sexuality of the woman intact. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Um, and lastly, where, if people want to learn more about you or your work, where can people find you?
1: My website is uh, www.wonderingwhoyouare.com. So all my
0: workshops, everything is there. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much again. This was such a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate you taking
1: thank it. Thank you, today. Anya. I really appreciate your questions. It was so uh, beautifully open, this conversation. And um,
0: I hope you have a great time on the road out there. Thank you. That's work. my goal. So I'm glad that you experienced it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hello, everybody. I always want to say welcome back at the end of these episodes uh, and always catch myself because you've been here the whole time. I need to sort of welcome myself back. Anyway, weird. I hope you enjoy that episode. If you would like to support the show, please head over to patreon.com slash Anya Cates, or, as I said in the beginning, you can tell people, send them a link to the show, uh, leave some uh, stars or a review, and subscribe on iTunes. Um, and again, if you have recommendations for cool places to see and people to interview uh, in Colorado, if you live in Colorado and want to hang out, send me an email, anyakates at gmail.com or through Instagram, it's at anya.kates. Uh, Today, I am going to play you out with uh, a Beck song called Morning, um, because uh, it was the first one that I thought about when trying to pick a song for this episode. Uh, Some of the lyrics are, can we start it all over again this morning? I lost all my defenses this morning. Won't you show me the way it used to be? Definitely not a song about memory loss, uh, but... Um I love song lyrics that can sort of mean multiple different things depending on when you're listening to it or who you are or um it's like poetry in that way. I remember when I used to write poetry quite a bit and still when I do that I'm I'm totally aware that what I'm writing is going to be relatively nonsensical to the reader, but I sort of like that they are going to read it through their own lens. And their own experience and kind of take from it what they want to take from it. Um, in fact, I'm actually sort of having a debate <laughs> with someone right now about a Beck song and whether or not it's purposefully nonsensical and whether that is a valid art form. They're like, oh, these words just rhyme and we'll just put. I'm just going to put them together, but there's like absolutely no theme. Um, and I'm I'm on the side of thinking there has to be a theme, even if it comes across as super vague or metaphorical or nonsensical, like to write a song or a poem or anything that actually has zero meaning is very foreign to me. I know that this happens, um, but there's some sort of weird stubborn thing inside me that wants to believe it doesn't, that like it has to come from somewhere. <laughs> it has to be inspired from something, some sort of thematic element, but maybe not, maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, uh, this song is not the song I'm having that debate about, but uh, it could apply. Anyway, this is morning. Bye, Beck. Um, talk to you guys in a week or so. Bye.